0: Well, good morning. good morning. How are y'all doing? It's an honor to be here. So good to see you. I'm excited about what we'll be doing here this morning, and for the opportunity to preach under the authority of God's word. So let us go. To, let's pray. Our great Father, God, thank you, Father, that we can say that as your people here this morning. God, thank you and that you are seated in heaven, and that you are outside of us, God, giving you, God, all sovereignty, all control, God, in all situations. And God, as our prayer today, God, as we move through this message, God, that we would give glory to your name, God, that it would be hollowed in this place this morning. And God, that your name would be more than just letters on a page, But, God, that we would feel the weight in the very essence, God, of what that name means. And, God, that in that, Father, your kingdom, God, would go forth. God, not only in this message, not only in this church, but ultimately, God, that your kingdom would go forth in this world. God, we give you all the glory. God, all the honor. God, and all the praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing our series here in When You Pray. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at the first part of this prayer. Last Sunday, Pastor Paul did an amazing job of sharing with us the reality of what Scripture shows us on how not to pray. He walked through that section of text there from verses 5 to verse 8, really laying the foundation and the framework for where. The Lord was taking His disciples here in this next section. We've kind of parachuted in here to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount message that our Lord's been doing back from the previous chapter. But We pick up here in verse 6, and at this point, we have two weeks left in this small series before we get into this next series that Pastor Ben's been preparing for. But this morning, the section that we're going to look is the, is the first section, because this prayer is in two sections, the first part dealing with God and the second part dealing with man, and each one has three petitions perfectly placed within there for us to see our Lord's heart. As we look at those first two verses this morning And there, as we, as we center and focus ourselves on the highness and the holiness of God and how that plays into our life, I pray that it would really just... Impact us in our walk here today as believers. You've also may have seen this in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Most believe it's a different time in which the Lord is sharing, but it's the two places we see it in Scripture here in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, verse 1. Now, most of you have heard this titled or referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and most of your Bibles will even say that right there on the top. But I would like to submit to you today, and what I believe is a better description for us, is that we would call it the disciples' prayer. There's a couple reasons why I bring that up. Firstly, it was, it was um, instructions that He was in fact given His disciples. And we know all throughout Scripture that instructions given to His disciples in a way are by extension for you and I here today as believers as well. But probably even more important than that, when we get to verse 12 next week, it says, "'Forgive us our debts.'" Well, Jesus didn't sin, therefore Jesus would not have prayed this prayer, because he had no sins to be forgiven of. So I submit to you that this would be more accurately the disciples' prayers, the prayer that the disciples prayed. It's the prayer that you and I as disciples today should, in fact, pray. That's kind of a main idea as we move through this. We're going to see that what Jesus has done is he's modeled a way for us to pray to give glory to his name, a model prayer for us to give glory to his name and how he intends to work in the earth and in us in our lives. And what we're going to see is there's really three things here that show us how to approach this prayer. And then inside of those three, and actually after that, we're going to look at what I believe is going to be the main meat of this message. And we're going to see the priority of prayer. Now, we know prayer should be prioritized, so that's not exactly what I'm talking about. But when we do pray, the priority by which we pray, when we pray, according to what Christ has shown us here in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at some reverence and some worship. And how our desire is impacted by what our Lord has shown us in this brief section this morning. So we're going to kind of get a run and start here. And we're going to run into the verse here starting in verse 8. So pack up one spot there. And we're going to pick up here in verse 8 reading. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe we see these three things that I just mentioned to you about how we are to approach this prayer. Firstly, we approach it with, and as Pastor Ben said this morning already, that God already knows. We approach prayer with the knowledge of knowing that God already knows and God already knows the needs that we have. He's not surprised by you and I's request or the things that we're going. We don't surprise God. God doesn't learn anything. Our song this morning spoke to that. Who's going to teach God anything? So we know that He knows. Nothing is too big. Actually, in reality, all of our prayers are small in comparison to God. That doesn't mean they're insignificant. That doesn't mean that they don't matter But we serve a God who is so much greater than anything we possibly can bring to him and has the ability to affect it. Secondly, this prayer is a model for all other prayers. It says there in verse 9, the first part, it says, pray then like this. Pray then like this. I think a good way for us to look at the prayer here as we see it as a model and what it can mean is that it's like an outline, or maybe even a skeleton, Right? It's the framework by which we are to pray. And I believe as we pray according to what Christ has shown here, the very Spirit of God that dwells within you and I as believer begins to fill the gaps and the voids with the other truths that come from Scripture. When we think about who He is and what He's done and what He's able to do, it begins to fill out a robust prayer that brings glory and honor to God. So it's a model. It's a model. We see there in the first part, uh, actually when we look back to last week, we know this because Jesus says, pray then like this. He just was trying to oppose how the hypocrites were praying, the vain repetition that was taking place, the way in which they were actually in that day, rabbis would, would pen out prayers and hand out for them to pray according in the exact way that it was done. He's saying, don't pray like that, pray then like this and then like this versus saying, pray these words, he says, pray then like this, right? So we see this as this model prayer. I think for many of us here in this room, including myself, if we grew up in the Catholic faith, this was a very, very common prayer that all of us prayed. Um, All of us memorized Scripture before we probably even realized that we memorized Scripture. And I think also if it's true of what has been true in my life and possibly yours, there's been elements of this prayer in the way in which Christ gives it to us here because of my background, I maybe in some ways have pushed back against that idea of that prayer, or maybe I've even minimized the importance of it because I was trained uh, wrongly with how to pray that prayer. Now clearly there's nothing wrong with you repeating this prayer, right? It is holy scripture and it is good, but what is the heart behind it? Is it to just repeat something for the sake of repeating something? Is it because we desire to memorize scripture? Is it because Psalms 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you? Or is it as the hypocrites were doing? So that they would see and other people would see what they were doing and it would be all these things going on. That's not what the Lord has for us here today. It's a model prayer for us and what should build out all of our life in prayer. And thirdly, And really speaking to the title of this morning's message is that we give priority to God first in prayer and then man's proper needs secondly, man's proper needs. And that's important. And Pastor Dom is really going to dive into that area next week. But those are the three things that I think are important for us to approach this, knowing that God already knows. He's given us a model prayer on how to do so. And lastly, that the priority of our prayers are to go to God first. Now that we know how to approach our Lord's instruction, let us spend the rest of our time seeing what should be in fact the priority of our prayer. I think when we get to that section there in the first part of verse 9, it says, pray then like this, and in your Bibles you have a colon, and that colon to me represents a moment of pause, a moment of reflection, a moment of us understanding the weight of what we're about to do when we are about to engage and communicate with the God of all Creation So let this be a time when we build in these uh, prayer times in our day that we, before we even before we even speak a word to God, that we understand the position that we stand, that we understand the weight of what it means to be able to commune in that way. and which is why I see in a, as a matter of our first point this morning that right prayer is worshipful. Right prayer is worshipful. We must remember that whatever we pray to, is what we worship. Whatever we pray to is what we worship, and there is only one God who is to be worshiped. He continues there in that verse 9, after pray then like this, and he opens up with our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. In heaven, there's so much that's happening here in this very profound statement, four words, but so much going on. We probably could have preached an entire message just on these four words, so I'll do my very best to get us through this this morning. But the very thing I think we need to see is that it opens up with the word our, the word our. And that word in itself tells us so many things. Our is a plural pronoun. Right? It's an interesting usage of it being right here that it says, our Father. It doesn't say, my Father. It doesn't say, our Father, although there are prayers in the Bible that other saints have prayed that said that. That's not necessarily wrong, but I think there's something important about why Christ has put an our right here. Why has He put our Father? There's a handful of things I think we should see, and that's one, is that our prayers are to be what's best for all of God's people, not just ourselves. Just like the gifts he gives us when we look back in Romans 12, my gift is for you and your gift is for me. My prayer is for you and your prayer is for me and our prayers are for one another, right? Our Father, it draws us in as a body of believers. Our points to the very communion of the saints that we have with one another, a security that comes for us being all brothers and sisters in Christ. When we say our Father, that intimately links every one of us in this building that knows our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10, I love this verse in verses 29 and 30, and it says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What does that scripture tell us? We we lack nothing. Why? Because everyone in this building has a house. And everyone in here has food and provisions. And guess what? If any of us as a body of Christ needs help in those areas, guess what? Our Lord has given to all of us for at our disposal for one another to care for the church that He's given us. So that word our links us together as a communion of brothers and sisters. It points to the fact that this prayer is for believers. This prayer for believers, those that know our Lord Jesus Christ, who have repented and who have believed in the gospel. But it didn't stop right there with our, because then he says, our Father. And then we have to stop again, because there's so much going on in the fact that he says, our Father. Jesus used the title Father in all of his prayers. When he prayed to his Father, he said, my Father, right? There was a connection between him and God. He was God in flesh on earth. It linked them differently differently. Than in other ways, it would have been, if we back up to what we did in Matthew 6, 8, what did it say? Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father, our Father, right? It's an amazing picture of the connection that we have, the reconciliation that has taken place in our life through the finished work of the cross. I think what it also does is it separates and makes a clear path and a clear line For those of us that did not have an earthly father that represented Christ, it shows us here that he is a good father. And no matter what background you came from, no matter what your situation is at home, the most wretched of situations of the father that you had here on earth, he is a good father. He's able to mend and to take care of and to to help you in all of those situations because he's different than any earthly father. Yeah, as a Christian, I desire to be like my Father in the way in which I do, but I cannot be like God the Father. Great care and great compassion. All throughout Scripture, there's a transit, there is a comparison and a contrasting of what it means between good and bad and evil. And when we know that God is the Father of those who have repented and believed, he also told us in John eight forty four to those other guys, your Father is what? The devil but he is a good father. For us to be able to call him father connects us directly to our salvation. When we sit down or we kneel down, whatever that looks like, and we open up with our father, it should be an instant reminder that God has saved you and redeemed you some would argue maybe that this is speaking more generally, that, if, that He's the Father of all things, this kind of universal application. And I don't believe that to be true, although Scripture does tell us that God is the Father of all created beings. Malachi 2.10, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Acts 17.28, for in Him we live and move and have our blessing, As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So we are in fact his children with regard to creation. But when we say our father here, this is a direct connection to being his child, a child of salvation. When uh, Paul's talking here at the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, and he says these poets, these are not people that know the Lord. And they're even subscribing to this reality that he's created But it's not about just being created. This is a Father that has saved us. For you and I, it carries a much different weight. Romans 5 tells us and shows us this beautifully. Verses 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him there's a difference between being a created being and being an heir of Christ and that is the prayer and that's the father that we talk to here think about the story of the prodigal son two sons both of them are children of the father but only one gets the ring on his finger. Only one is an heir of the family there. They were physical, but there's a spiritual that took place for you and I. And lastly here in this section of this first phrase, closing out this first statement, our Father in heaven directs our worship to a Father who is transcendent to a Father who is transcendent. In Romans there, when it says, Abba, Father, Abba being the Aramaic, Father being Pater in the Greek, speaking to that of which, how we would use the word Daddy. Right? We would, it was it an was intimate knowledge of how we would have that relationship. And now that connects to that it's our Father in heaven. Feel the weight of what that means to be able to say our Father, to be connected in that way, and then connect that to in heaven. He's above any of us. He's outside of what you and I deal with or have the ability to as carnal, finite beings. He's infinite and eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. A God that can do all things. A God that has always existed, right? That's just something that makes your mind explode. Always existed. And not only did he exist, he was in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We need God. God didn't need us. Everything was perfectly in place. But yet, he kills us to call him our Father in heaven. I love what it says in Mark 11, and we'll look at this a little bit later. But his disciples are talking to Jesus. It's the last week as they move towards the crucifixion. And he tells his disciples, have faith in God have faith in God why can we have faith in God because he is a God in heaven he's not like us he's not here he's not here being able to be bound by the things that you and I are bound by he would be no God at all if he wouldn't be outside of his creation first timothy 1:17 says to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. His heaven directs our worship to him. And may the first priority, the first right priority of our prayers be that of worship. That we would see him as our father, but yet we would say that he is our father who is in heaven. He is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. If we don't worship him, then that's not who we see as God at all anyway. Our father sits on the throne of heaven, and by his great grace and mercy, he has saved us. So not only is right prayer worshipful, but right prayer is reverent. Right prayer is reverent being our second emphasis. Continuing in verse 9, it says, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. To be reverent is to show a deep and solemn respect. I think we understand what it means to be reverent in our lives, to walk in reverence. But we're being called to something differently here because that word hallow speaks to that Uh, idea of being referent and what that really means. It's from the Greek word hagiadzo, which means to consecrate, to set apart, to be declared holy or to be declared sacred. So not only is it our Father in heaven, now it says that hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name. And how do we see and know that God is holy? Well, first and and foremost, we need to know that it is the very essence of who He is. He is separate from us. He is apart from you and I. He's not like us, right? That's why He's able to save us. That's why when we look at the reality of the gospel and we see the highness and the holiness of God in comparison with the sinfulness of mankind and humanity, we know that there's a need for a great Savior to bridge the gap between those two situations that come in our repentance in our belief, He's holy. He's apart from us. First Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no right rock like our God. So how do we hollow the name of Jesus? Right? I think it's easy to understand, but I think it's more than just saying something. As, as a Christian, there's a way in which we walk this out ultimately. And I want us to look quickly at four things that are ways I believe that we can do this in our lives. Firstly, he's hallowed in our lives when we acknowledge his existence, when we acknowledge his existence. Hebrews eleven six. "...and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him." Believe that he exists. The world all around us wants to tell us that God doesn't exist, and we don't want to have anything to do with God, and pushing Him out of everything and everywhere. But His name is hallowed when we show that He, is, he exists. Now, we know He exists no matter what. Romans 1, 19 and 20 gives us a beautiful picture of this. For, we can, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God, in fact, exists. But we hallow His name when we we speak to that, and we speak to the reality that He does, in fact, exist, and you believe in who He is. He's also hallowed when we speak what is good and true about Him. True knowledge about God versus false knowledge about God. True knowledge about God is reverent. It brings us to a place of reverence. False knowledge about God is irreverent. It does not, in fact, give glory to God. When we open up Scripture Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, elevate after elevate, D-group after D-group, life group after life group, we seek to know and understand God and reverence Him through His Word. I heard this quote, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord God in vain. When we encounter, when we engage Scripture, may we see it and come at it in a place of reverence, that our prayer would be reverent, knowing that this is the God of all creation that has given us these great truths. Truth is foundational for our security as believers. I think about Proverbs 1-7, that what fear of God is the beginning of Knowledge, the fear of God, a reverence for God. When we understand who God is truly, then we are able to stand under God securely with a reverence and an awe. This idea of standing under these truths, I believe is important. You and I sit here today under these lights and this roof and these ceilings and these beams, and none of you think twice about what would happen if it all collapsed upon your head. Why? Because you know it to be true. You know it to be solid. You know it to be, to be firm. It's in place, right? There's a reverence and a awe that comes in our life when we come up to big architectural structures, and we're like, wow. Have you ever been to the arch in Missouri? And you look down and you stand like, how is this thing even here? Right? There's an awe that comes over us. But how much more is there an awe and a reverence when we come up against the truths of Scripture, knowing that we can firmly stand under it and have to worry nothing about it? A reverence for God and His Word as we approach Him in prayer. I think David showed this for us beautifully throughout the Scripture's Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Look at the intentionality of David. I set the Lord before me. Given a place of priority, knowing a awe and a reverence that comes from his love for his Lord. Thirdly, he is hallowed when we are obedient to him. Later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, right? When we obey the Lord's commands, we walk out the will of the Lord in our lives. We are to obey his commands and in that his name is hallowed. And not only is it hallowed, it brings glory to the Father and other people are impacted because of that in our lives. When we hallow his name, it has impacts on others. When you're in your workplace, when you're at home, when you're with friends, when you're amongst people at church, I mean, I bet you all of you could think of one person who regularly says things like, praise God, glory to the Father, right? Anytime we hear someone do that, it is, it's impactful. Why? Because it gives glory where glory is due. It has impact. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor, and that's the word hagiazo, but in your hearts, hallow Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Matthew five sixteen. in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Psalm 34, 3, an amazing psalm that I would encourage you to read when you get home this afternoon. David here on the run says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He's in a cave of all kinds of crazy people at that point. And he encourages them to exalt his name of the Father with him. Our right prayers are reverent when we understand the weight of his name. And that takes us to this next part of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That ties back to the first part where we said our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That name connects back to when we said, Father, and it's sweet and it's special, and it means a lot to us for those that know Christ, but we can never forget what it, the weight of what that name means and what it ultimately represents. In that, in that name, where we say, Father, right here, hallowed be your name, is the, all of the character of God, all of the attributes of God, the very nature and reality of who God is, even more so than just in just a name, more than just letters on a page. Yes, he's El Shaddai. Yes, he's Jehovah Jireh. Yes, he's Almighty God. But there's so much more than who God is, because not only is he a name, he is He is the very essence of what those names represent. I think the only way you can accurately talk about this is to go back to Exodus 3. Moses is tending the flock for his father-in-law, and he sees a burning bush. We pick up in verse 13. He's asked to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. They have this conversation that begins, and then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask him, what is your name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There's a little bit of work we need to do, a little bit of looking we need to see here because the divine name of God, the very first time that God in fact shares his divine name as we've come to know it here in Exodus 3, I believe carries the full weight of what we see here when we say, hallowed be your name. Moses is looking at this situation, and Moses and anybody in that day would have known him as Almighty God. You can look back in scripture, they would have called him Almighty God. They would have called him the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they would have had great connection to what God has done in the lives of those people. But Moses says something differently. He says, What is his name? What do I tell him? Why are they going to listen to me? Just because I tell them Almighty God? Just because I tell him the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God says, I'm going to give you something different that I've never given you before. I'm not going to give you the what. I'm going to give you the who. I am who I am. That phrase there called the tetragrammaton has so much going on there. In the Hebrew, it's haya aser haya. It's Y-H-W-H as you've seen in other places. It's where ultimately we get the word Yahweh and Jehovah. God saves. He says, I'm not just another name. I'm a who, and that who carries the full weight of who I am and what I am able to do in each and every situation. I'm a God seated in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why? Because it is a name that is able to do all things. I heard this story that helped me further understand this idea of breaking out a what and a who. A what typically speaks to a thing, whereas a who normally speaks to a person. But there was this great teacher in a college, and he was preparing to get ready for his lecture, and he looked out into the crowd, and his students were beginning to get into place. And one of his female students begins to walk in, and he notes, notices that she's got a flashy ring on her left hand. And she's, you know, carrying it in a way in which people would see it. So he, as any good teacher would in that moment, took an opportunity to teach a great lesson. And for the sake of this story, we'll, we'll call her Mary. And Mary looks over at the teacher, and I think he's waiting to get a little attention. And he says, oh, you got a ring on your finger. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob, Bob engaged, uh, proposed to me. Oh, wow. She's like, well, what do you like about Bob. She said, well, he's, he's really handsome. And the teacher said, whoa, really? He said, well, I mean, Fred, Tom, Dave, all these guys here, they're pretty handsome too. Why don't you like them? She's like, I don't, you know, she's starting to kind of like give him these weird looks. And he goes, well, I mean, wh- why else do you like him? She said, well, he's really, really athletic. She says, well, this is the football team sitting right here. They're all really athletic too. Why don't you like them? And at this point, she's starting to get... Really irritated. I mean, she's just trying to show off her ring, right? And and she's being heckled by the teacher. So he gives her one more question. He says, "Well, what else do you like?" I said, "Well, he's really, he's really smart. He's doing well in your class." He said, "Well, the valedictorian of your class is sitting over here. Why don't you like him?" And at this point, she is she's livid with this whole situation. And he says, "Now, class, let me help you understand something. It's not the what that she likes about him. It's the who." that she likes about Bob. Because of who he is, the reality of who he is is why she loves him so much. right? There's so much more in the who than in the what. right? And here we see Moses struggling with the same thing. What do I say is your name? He says, don't tell him what my name is. Tell him who I am. I am who I am. I'm more than just a name. I'm the God that's able to do all things mightily. In that case, save them From the Egyptians. We can irreverently fall into the what and say, and this is a common statement that many of you heard throughout your lives and maybe even have said it most recently, that it is what it is. How many of you said that? Shame on you. (laughs) It is what it is, and our prayer lives is a problem. However, If we focus our reverence, if we understand the reality of who God is and why He's asking us to pray, what we then focus on is not, it is what it is, but I am who I am. And that changes everything. So our right prayers are reverent. And lastly here this morning, our right prayer bends our desires. It bends our desires. We've approached it now with a place of worship and reverence in verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we rightly pray, our selfish desires should just fall to the floor. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I shared a story with our elders this week at a retreat that you heard him speak of earlier as I was reading the book, and this guy was... Uh, talking about prayer and the, and the weight of what it means for us to come and approach the God of all creation. And he's talking about sinfulness and our desire, because selfish desires are sinfulness. And he was laying out this idea that he said, yeah, I can take you over here and I can show you someone who is a sinner, a drunkard, a um, adulteress. You know, we can pick all kinds of things to show what sin is. He said, but that's not really the best picture of what sin is, he said. An even better picture of sin is, and to get a, a greater understanding and the weight of what it means to approach something sinful, he said, I want you to look at a devout man of God, one who loves prayer and loves his Lord and loves his Word, and that can wake up in the morning, fall down on his knees, and before a word even comes out of his mouth of prayer, he's already potentially sinned because of his own selfish desires. That's weighty, but it's true of you and I, that if, we're, if we don't approach prayer, if we don't approach God in the same way, we can find out that our desires are selfish. They are, in fact, against God, which lacks reverence, which lacks worship. So it says there, your kingdom come, your will be done. That word, your, is so important. James 1.3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It can't be any clearer than that. We asked, but wrong. And let that never be of our prayers. May we never treat God as a genie in a bottle. That we go to him and we rub the side of the lamp hoping to get whatever we can get and do whatever we can do and bail us out of whatever we need being bailed out of. That's not what God has modeled for us here in this prayer. We have to bend to him as we begin to know him and to understand him more. I thought about the idea was about two years ago, I was at a guy's house we were buying a dirt bike from, him, and he was showing us this nice wooden boat that he was making from scratch. So it was just impressive, first of all, just kind of the, the sheer time and effort that goes into that. But I started to think about that as I was looking at this idea of, of the Lord bending our hearts to being more like him, to understanding his will and understand the things that were going on. All of the boards that he started off with were, strong, were, were straight and stiff. Right? And they would not have made a very good boat bottom at all. It would have made a very good box, but not a good boat at all. And so, you know, that's what happens in our lives. That over a time of a, of a, of applying pressure of the Word of God, over a time of, of wetting and drying and clamping and placing and in the place, eventually that straight board ended up being what formed the keel of his boat that was no longer straight. But that didn't happen like that, but did the boat bow to the board, or did the board bow to the boat? The board did, because this was was necessary for it to be right and for it to work according to its purpose. If that board would have stayed straight, that would have been a terrible, terrible boat. Now, I also think, and as I was talking to this gentleman, he said, you know, some of the boards that he would buy, he would try to form them and to shape them, but they would, in fact, crack as he went further and further. And then he would take them and use them in other places of the boat. And not to overly spiritualize that, but I think the same thing happens in our lives. I think when we don't bend to God's will in our life and in our prayer and approach him in that way, there's a point there where you may break, which then only makes you further rely on God. Still usable, still his child, still able to call him our father, but we were asking wrongly to spend it on our own passions, as James said there. Right? Right prayer bends us to God. It bends our desires to being more like Him. It was mentioned here this morning as well, this idea of God using crooked sticks. He makes crooked sticks straight. That's only the work of our Father that does that. And may our prayer lives approach it in that way. But as we break down this last phrase here, uh, in verse 10, we're going to look at it in three different pieces. That first one there, your kingdom come. We must remember that the king is always connected to his kingdom. May we never forget that. May his kingdom come, and the king is always connected to his kingdom. I love Jesus' word here in John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of, is not from the world. Right? Jesus understood kingdom. Jesus understood what it meant to have a kingdom and to rule a kingdom because there is a battle of two kingdoms. Make no mistake. There is the father of lies. There is Satan in his kingdom. And there is the God of all creation, the infinite God, and his kingdom. The kingdom of the present world, Satan, is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. That's why it says here, your kingdom come. We must ask ourselves, are our thoughts and ideas and beliefs aligned with the kingdom of God? Or are they, in fact, in line with the kingdom of Satan? I think sometimes when we look at this word kingdom, it, it can be a bit confusing. All right, what, what is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? I've heard that before. I like it. What, what's going on here with this idea of my kingdom, your kingdom comes? So, so, so where is God's kingdom Where's God's kingdom? He's obviously, it, it exists. He's talking about it here in this prayer. As we read earlier, firstly, I think we need to understand that God's kingdom is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Right? So God's kingdom resides in heaven. But that's not, that's not the only place. God's kingdom is, is here now. Limited, may it be in some ways, but His kingdom is here now. One, where when Jesus is walking the earth, he says there in Mark 1.15 that my kingdom has come, right? He, he is there. He is the king. He's not separated from his kingdom. Each of you here today that know Lord as Savior and, he, and his spirit dwells within you, his kingdom is there. It's an almost, but not yet. But what I believe that tells us is that it should encourage us to evangelize those around us knowing that God's children are still out there and they don't all know the Lord yet. But when we bring the gospel, that's the way by which our Lord saves and his kingdom comes then in that person's life. And his kingdom comes in that person's life and this person's life life, and this person's life until our Lord ultimately returns. And I believe that's the primary thing that we need to look at here when we see that our kingdom come is that God's kingdom will come to earth one day in its fullness. The second coming of Christ is going to happen. Scripture tells us, affirms it, and we know it to be true. And for us that have the kingdom within us now should long for the day that his kingdom would come to earth once and for all, abolishing the other kingdom. Let that be an encouragement for us. Revelation 2.20, he who testifies to these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The second to last verse of the Bible Bible speaking to where our heart and our affection is to be set on the kingdom to come. I think about Jesus' last words when he left earth. He gives us the great commission, go therefore, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Fast forward to the end of the New Testament, and what does it say there? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Our responsibility in that window of time, as we long and we have a desire to see Lord come back, and we desire to see His kingdom come, is that we also see that the kingdom be advanced in the lives of those that He would so choose to save. May we be a church honed in on evangelism, honed in on seeing the lost saved. Nextly, Your will be done. Your kingdom come your will be done. Our heart's desire should be that the, will of the, that the will of God would go forth. That the will of God would go forth in every situation. I read this quote this week that says, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. God's will done on earth. We looked at the kingdom and as we move into this section here of dealing with his will, I think it's important for us to look at what does this mean by his will? Because I believe there's some wrong understandings that we can have with regard to his will and how we approach this great prayer, this great model prayer for us to walk out in our lives. Wrongly, I think we can happen as we read this and as we, as we see your kingdom come, your will be done, I think there's a bit of a and I'm talking to us as believers. I believe there's a bit of a rebellion that can kind of come up in our heart of saying, "Well, what's the point of praying?" And becoming a bit resentful by, you know, God's sovereign and His will has gone forth and all these things are taking place. But what's so? So why pray? Right? I think the other side is that there's a ditch on both sides of the road here, and I believe the other one is is kind of like this passive reverence of I'm going to pray, but you know I don't know if it really matters all too much. Uh, but you know, I'm told to pray, well, that's, there's no faith in that prayer. Right? There's, this, there's this pushing back, this rejection, this rebellion on one side, there's this passive faith on the other, but that's a wrong understanding of God's will. It, 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 God, would be, God would be unjust if He didn't have us involved from the situation of us being able to make these decisions and to be able to pray according to His will and to be able to ask these different things. So that's a wrong understanding of his will, but what would be a right way? What would be the way we would contrast that? Well, first of all, what's the point of praying? First of all, the point is that God has given us prayer and has commanded us to do so. And as a believer, we desire to honor all that he has done for us. First Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray therefore at all times. Pray without ceasing, right? That's a command from our Lord to us. Therefore, we should desire to pray. So what's the point? The first one is, is that God has commanded us to do so. Secondly, knowing that it is prayer is the very way by which our Lord is sovereignly working in every situation around us. It is the means to ultimately His sovereign plan, and the providence of God playing out in our lives. Why do we pray for situations like this morning that seem impossible? Because for you and I, they are. That's why God, in fact, that's why Jesus, in fact, told his disciples when they're looking at that dead fig tree that the Lord has cursed, trying to understand what happens there, and he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. It makes no sense to us on how some of these things could happen because we're not God. So when we have a right understanding of his will and a right understanding of desire to obey him, then we pray. We pray according to his will. We pray, our Father who is in heaven. And this is what I know, one or two things happen in those situations. God answers that prayer, or he gives his people the ability to walk in that situation. Either way, God answers and works. As Rachel and I were praying this morning, we were thinking through some things, and that was exactly my prayer. God, this is what I want done. But I want you to bend my desires to yours. And whether that be you do what I am praying or hoping would happen, or you teach me how to walk in it, the glory goes to you. That's a proper understanding of what it means that your will be done. We need to pray in faith. I just mentioned there in Mark 11, and Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, this is not some prescription for getting whatever you want. Jesus wasn't ultimately telling that mountain to jump into the ocean. He was given a a physical metaphor to teach a profound spiritual truth that he's God. He could, in fact, take that mountain and throw it over there if that was what he so chose. But that wasn't the heart behind it. He was saying, have faith in God. And when your prayers are in alignment with, I, with my will, guess what? They're answered accordingly. And when they're not in alignment with his will, they're not answered accordingly. But yet as his children and his love for us, he teaches us how to walk and how to process and how to do that in our lives. James 1, 6-8 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How many times do we short-arm it when it comes to prayer with regards to, I'm not sure if that's really going to work out like that. I don't want to be wrong if I ask for that. Man, what if it ends up not happening? What does that say about, my God, wrong approach, wrong approach. Our faith is not the power. The God of who we have faith in is the power to do those things. You don't need more faith. You have faith if you are his child. He's the one that has the power to change those things. Right? It's not a prescription if you just get what you want. It's showing that if when we do according to his will, then that is in fact what we see. Our faith is not the power. God is the one who has the power. And he closes out that third phrase there and says, on earth as it is in heaven. So I ask this a question when I see things like that. Well, what's happening in heaven right now? If he wants to happen here, what's happening in heaven? Well, what's happening in heaven? Well, Scripture tells us what's happening in heaven. Because our right prayer desires that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven now. Right, That's actually what it speaks to when we look at the grammatical breakdown. It's a, it's a now. It's a here and a now. It's not something that could be. What's happening now? Well, one of many verses, Psalms 103.20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty one who does his word, obeying the voice of his word. So what's happening in heaven? His angels are obeying his words. They're, they're saying glory, glory, glory. All praise, all glory, all honor is gone to the Father. So what does it look like for here On you and I and our earth here today. That glory would be given to the Father in each and every situation until the day in which He sets up His kingdom once and for all. And you say, Man, but there's just so much sin, there's so much brokenness, there's so much thing, so many things going around that I don't like, that's painful, that's hurtful. I don't see how any of that is ultimately giving glory to God. Well, then you fall back into that person of saying, What's the point of praying? Sin is a reality sin is something that we in fact have to deal with. Jesus preached against sin all the time. Did he not understand sin better than any of us? And he went what did he do when he went into the temple? He flips over their tables, he makes a whip, he drives everything out of there and he says, "You have made this a what? A den of thieves." Right? This place that is not worshiping God, but he said, "I chose for it to be not a house of trade, but a house of prayer." We fight against sin. As a church, we we speak against sin. We desire that sinful things that happen around us don't happen, right? When we have opportunities to engage the culture and our lives and our families, we speak against sin, and we don't try to just create social reform. We try to bring the gospel because we know that that's the kingdom that only matters. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for Satan's will to be undone. Another quote I read this week, but catch that. But the will of God would be that Satan's will would be, in fact, undone. I mean, that's what you and I are doing here as we walk on earth, is that the effects and the impact of sin would be undone by the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way in which we pray according to his will. That's the way in which we see that he is God, in fact, in heaven. We see that he is our Father. We see that he is high and he is Holy. And His kingdom will come. Let us rest in that. Let us be excited about that. His kingdom will come. So next time you open up your scripture here to Matthew chapter 6, next time you sit down or kneel down or stand to pray because you can pray anywhere at all times and in any way, let us see this very first part of this prayer here is that He has modeled for us first and foremost in a way of priority that glory goes to God. That our prayer is worshipful and our prayer is reverent and our prayer should bend our desires to the will of the Father ultimately. Why? Because we know that he already knows what we need. Verse 8, we already know. Therefore, therefore we are obedient to him and and we pray to him. He's given us this great motto. We know that the priority of our prayer must be to the glory of the Father. When we properly align with the Father, when we properly align with who He is, then our horizontal situation is forever changed. God, we are so thankful that we can pray to our Father, our Father who is seated in heaven, our Father who is transcendent, our Father who is above all things, our Father who has saved us, has brought us together, has provided brothers and sisters in Christ that can meet every one of our needs. A father who is good to us, a father who is different than possibly a father that we've had here on earth that didn't show anything of it. God, your name is holy and it's high. God, just as it is going on in heaven, they're singing holy, 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 and they're obeying every one of your commands perfectly. And that's what it looks like when your people here on earth, God, pray to you, God, work according to your purposes. God, your kingdom has come. You sent your son, God, to be the propitiation, the atoning work, God, so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. God, your goodness and your mercy go on forever and ever. And God, may we not be concerned and, God, get caught up in the what, but, God, that we would know that we are praying to the great I am, the I am who I am. And God, we long for the day. God, when you would return. But God, that longing for the day does not stop us, God, for longing to see your kingdom set up in the lives of those that don't know you. That your children are out there. That you've got children in this building right now, God, that don't know you yet. God, our prayers that they would repent and believe in the gospel. God, we hate sin. God, you hate sin. But God, we know that we serve a God who is able to work in these situations. God, when it's all said and done, God, may glory be given to your name. God, and may we have fellowship with you for an eternity. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.